just as I say every week as we begin, um, just as I strongly feel that God has called me to this church, I believe that God has called each and every one of you to this church as well. Whether that be to meet someone here, uh, to hear the message, to be there for someone, whatever it may be, I pray uh, that God reveals that to you on this special day. Now before we begin, I'm going to ask you a question, and we're going to get a little interactive, and so you'll pull out your phones for this. Uh, oh my, what is this? Okay, I don't think it's working, so maybe we will not do it. Is it showing up? Do you see it there? Okay, it's kind of going in and out. Maybe we won't do this. Okay, so I'll figure it out next time. So technical difficulties for this one, but next time maybe we'll do it. So the question that I wanted to ask, I don't want anyone raising their hands or anything like that, um, but the question or the statement is kind of a fill in the blank. It is, I have blank self-esteem. So the options are, Either I have a high self-esteem or I have a low self-esteem. Um, I want you to think about that. Uh, don't answer me. Uh, I, don't, I don't need to know, and we don't want to uh, expose anyone here today. Um, but there was a book that I was reading uh, a few weeks ago, actually about two weeks ago, where I was inspired and I thought about uh, this topic, and hence we have the sermon today uh, by the author of Tim Keller. And so... I'll be alluding a little bit to that book, and, and what you will see today is from that. Um, so the crazy thing, the actually really interesting thing, is that 85%, according to research, 85% of the world suffers from this issue of low self-esteem, right? And it's crazy because the older I get and the more people that I meet, I realize that this is a problem, right? As, you, as I simply talk to people more, um, as I look around to the people uh, in my neighborhood, in my community, for my friend groups, and to outside of that, uh, some of us may have self-esteem issues, and self-esteem issues are a pretty big problem, right? We see a lot of this happening. And whether we realize it or not, self-esteem is an issue. In our churches, the issue of self-esteem can tear us apart, right? It can hurt us, it can prevent us from having a life of joy, love, and happiness. Now, if you feel like you're in the boat of, maybe I have self, uh, high self-esteem, you might think that this sermon might not apply to you. But the issue of self-esteem in general is what we're going to be diving into. Now, I'm not here to call anyone out, whether you have a low self-esteem or high self-esteem. Um, but what I'm trying to do today in this message is to raise awareness, right? Not only to raise awareness, but to make you really think about where you stand with God in terms of your self-esteem. So I want to talk about first a few of the, the pros and, or not pros and cons, a little bit about low self-esteem and high self-esteem and the fixes that we as a world uh, have today. So for low self-esteem, it can stem from many different things, right? Psychologists tend to differ on these reasons, uh, but to name a few things, low self-esteem can stem from previous trauma, uh, whether it be physical or mental, hurtful experiences due to friends, uh, or even parents or family, whatever it may be, bullying, society, media, all these things uh, can result in a low self-esteem. And we in the 21st century, we tend to blame low self-esteem, or we tend to say that low self-esteem is the problem why we have so much evil in this world, right? Where there's people that are doing these crazy things that we see on the news, we say, oh, well, the root of it, in essence, is the fact that they have a low self-esteem. 
On the flip side, we look at high self-esteem, right? Which could result from the same things, previous experiences, false sense of who they are, from the society, media, the list can go on and on. But now before the 21st century, they thought that the problems and troubles that were caused by, uh, that were caused, that people were causing in the world, right, was not because of a low self-esteem, it was actually because they thought people had too high of a self-esteem, right? There was this always belie this belief that if, you're, if you had too high view of yourself, that was the root cause of evil in this world. The issue of pride, or in the Greek, hubris, okay, was the root cause of why people misbehaved. Now, these two opposite sides of self-esteem, right? We in the 21st century, we say we have these fixes and solutions, right? But are they really fixes and solutions to these problems. You know, I'll speak with you today on a very personal level, right? Me, myself, as I was growing up, I struggled with the issue of low self-esteem. And as I grew up, I was never fond of myself. I always, you know, struggled with the way that I looked, the way that I talked, the person that I was. I did not see myself as good enough in the eyes of this world. I never saw myself as smart enough. And I grew up with a very low view of who I was, and I had very low values. Of course, I did not want to be like this, right? I didn't want to look so down upon myself. Because you know why? It was not only affecting me as a person, but it was affecting the people around me, my peers, the things that I was doing for work, for school. The people that I cared about so much were being affected because of my low self-esteem. So with this, I thought, hey, there are a lot of self-help books, like lots of articles, lots of things you can find on the internet, and maybe you've, you've had bad days, and so you just look up those memes or those things online that kind of like cheer you up and put you in a good mood, right? The world's solution to having a low self-esteem is fix it with the high self-esteem, right? Lift yourself up, right? And for me, it's pretty attractive. It makes sense, right? If you see yourself as not good looking, then you see yourself as perfect the way you are, right? Does that make sense? Okay. If you're emotionally weak, you just tell yourself, I'm stronger than this, right? I'm emotionally a strong person. Now, don't go, get me wrong. I do this all the time, okay? Many authors and inspirational speakers, they say that words are powerful. And when you say these positive affirmations to yourself, you can make yourself feel better, but also you can become a happier person. Now, I won't lie, right? I do this all the time. If you go to my office and you look at my mirror in my office, I have notes that I write to myself, right? I am loved, that I'm cared for, that I'm stronger than this, right? That I'm worthy to be loved and to love, and that I believe in myself and that I care about who I am, right? So I say these things to myself, and I'm saying it's wrong, right? Maybe you guys do that. Maybe you have like a routine that you do every morning when you wake up. I'm not saying it's wrong, but does it work, right? Is it really effective? We live in a culture that believes that in order for us to fix a low self-esteem, all we need to do is support and build around them, right? But let's think about this more. I don't think lying to myself is a way to fix self-esteem. Because when things, let's say when things don't work out, right? What happens when, you know, you continue to hurt and you have all these overwhelming feelings and then even after that, you tell yourself that you're strong but you don't really feel strong? I don't think lying to yourself is a better solution. The vicious cycle completely repeats, if not becomes more vicious. As attractive as it may sound, I want to present with you today something a little different right, than what society tells us. Today, I want to bring to you a biblical approach to how we can deal with the issues of self-esteem. So before we do that, let's go ahead and read through our scripture. Um, it's going to be found in 1 Corinthians 3, 21, and then we'll go to chapter 4, verse 7. And I'll read it for you, and it says, 
So let no one boast about human leaders, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or death or life, or the present or the future, all belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Think of us in this way, as servants of Christ and stewards of God's mysteries. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. I do not even judge myself. I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purpose of the heart, that each one will receive condemnation from God. I have applied all this to Apollos and myself for your benefit, brothers and sisters, so that you may learn though through us the meaning of the saying, nothing beyond what is written, so that none of you will be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if it was not a gift? So what in the world is going on, okay? Let's get a little bit of background. I think this is important. So the Corinthian church, this is a, a letter from Paul to the Corinthian church. And the church is currently filled with division, right? The Corinthian church was originally planted by the apostle Paul, but as we can see in the letter, there are references to Apollos and Cephas, Peter, right? So apparently after Paul had left this church, other missionaries, other leaders came to the church and continued to do what Paul was doing there for the Corinthians. So in this church, right, people are taught and mentored by Paul himself, right? While there are others who are also mentored and taught by other people, like Apollos, right? Who was also a great leader and so on. But here's the catch, this is the issue. Instead of it all being great, joyful, a jolly church, a church that was happy with the relationship and mentoring from Paul, Apollos, or whatever leader they went, got their mentorship from, it turned up into a fight, right, of who had more power. It was a power struggle, right? There are divisions in the church. There are groups of people who are coming together, forming these cliques, and it's slowly tearing the church apart. Leaders are saying, hey, I should be the leader of this because I was taught under the one and only, the Paul, right? And then other people are like, oh, are you kidding me? Like, Apollos, like, have you heard this guy teach? Like, I learned from him. I'm doing way better, and I think I should be qualified for a leading role, right? Now, to better understand uh, the importance of what's going on, right, and why people were sticking with certain sides, you know, we think of it, and we read it, and we're like, hey, why can't we just all get along? Like, you learn from him, I learn from him, like, let's be friends. But let me explain to you what's going on with these backgrounds of the leaders, right? So for Paul, right, Paul, the people who really stuck with his teachings and his mentorings, they would most likely be Gentile people, right, or underprivileged Gentiles. Paul's preaching was very simple. 1 Corinthians 2.1 says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you by testimony about God. So pretty much Paul's message was very clear and straightforward. He wasn't trying to be confusing. It was not intellectually demanding, um, but it had a very strong appeal to people that were well, uneducated, the people that were kind of new to this Jesus scene, right? Um, Paul, who was also known for spreading the gospel message to the Gentiles, had made it clear that the rules and regulations, the thing about Judaism, right, the exclusivity about Judaism, no longer applied and that Gentiles could be a part of it as well, right? Galatians 3.28 says, you are all sons of God, all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. There's neither Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ, right? That's a liberating message. It's a message of Christ, 
that is open for everyone. And this is the message that Paul had to bring. So it's very appealing, if you think about it, to the people in the church who are not Jews, right? But they're just simply commoners that want a share of this gospel message, right? So you can see these people sticking up for Paul, like, oh yeah, Paul. But Apollos, now Apollos isn't someone we really talk about in the Bible, uh, but we can read about him in Acts 18, 24 and 25. It says, Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the ways of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately. So we read furthermore in verse 27 of that chapter, that in Corinth, he, had, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. So Paul later writes in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 8, and we see later into our reading today, that Paul planted the seed and Apollos watered it. So we see that Paulus wasn't around like spreading like false doctrine or like teaching like some wrong thing, right? Paulus was very looked upon highly by Paul. And so Paulus, you know, he was a scholar. He knew his Bible, right? He was, he was from the great city of Alexandria, uh, which was the hub of knowledge in scholastics, right? It was a great place to be. So you can imagine that the people that were more of the intellectual side of the church would be like, hey, like, I'm going to stick with this guy because this guy has like, some real meaty stuff in his message. And then we see Cephas, or Peter, you can imagine, right? I like to think of Peter as the chihuahua of the disciples. Like, he's, you know, he's, he has this personality where he's like, really like, oh, I'm tough, but then at the same time, like, you see him chicken out a lot of the times, right? So automatically, because Peter was a direct disciple of Jesus, you can see that you know, that gives him status, right? So people are like, oh yeah, this guy was, he was the original. He was part of the original crew. Now, Peter, okay, he was very embedded into the teachings of Judaism. And he didn't really let go of his old customs as easily, right? Peter understood the members of the church who were a little afraid, right? To let go of their traditions and losing their identity as Jewish people, right? So you see, the people, they're finding leaders that fit their needs and their wants. And this is why there was division in the church. Paul states in our reading today that the cause for division in the church was due to pride and boasting. Verse 21 started off by saying, no more boasting. Chapter 4, verse 7 says, why do you boast? Verse 6 says, so that none of you will be puffed up. Or another word for that is that none of you will be filled with pride, right? To take pride in one man over against another. So the issue of pride and boasting. Paul is urging the church, right, to step aside away from pride and boasting and to go after this trait of humility. And this is where we get into the interesting subject of self-esteem. You see, the crazy thing and interesting thing about the First Corinthians, right, about First Corinthians, is that Paul gives us an approach to how we should see ourselves, our self-regard. He presents to us a different approach that is completely different from both the traditional and modern cultures of today. Right? So we're gonna jump into three things that Paul shows us. The first being the natural condition of the human ego. Okay, so for younger people, ego, do you guys know what ego is? What is ego? Ego, okay, is a person's sense of self-esteem or self-importance, okay? That's how we see ourselves. So, Paul begins by telling us in verse six to have no more pride in one person over another. And we may think, okay, Paul, great. Like, that's so helpful. Pride is not good, we know that. But there's something that we don't realize when Paul is using the word pride or puffed up. 
Typically in the Greek, the word pride is hubris, as I said earlier, but Paul uses a different word. Paul uses the word physio, right? And the word is a very unusual word to use. So in the Bible, this word only shows up five times, right? Five times in this book and only once in Colossians, so six times total. And you won't find it anywhere else in the Bible. Scholars say that there's a very spe special and specific theme that Paul is trying to get at when he is using this word. By using this word, Paul is directly speaking about the human ego. The word Paul used literally means, right, overinflated, swollen, and distended beyond its proper size. This word is related to the word for bellows, okay? This word is extremely evocative, right? You should imagine something in your mind when you hear this. It brings out a very strong image, or at least it should be. I need someone uh, to help me. Can you blow this balloon as big as you can without popping it? Okay, thank you. Okay, so as Michael does that, he's gonna blow this balloon. This is the image that we should get. So a balloon typically maybe, maybe like at that size is, yeah, it's decent, right? Just keep going, but don't pop it, okay? Right? How much bigger can we get it? Okay? Okay, I'm getting scared. So, <laughs> all right, we'll stop there. Okay, so that looks pretty big, right? It looks pretty overinflated. Yeah, you can tie it. Okay. So, the balloon here is extremely overinflated. It is swollen, and it should not be this big. Actually, maybe for some of you guys, like, you can push it a little bit more, right? But let's just say it's not supposed to be that big, right? This is the imagery. Okay, I'll take it back. <laughs> Thank you. This is the imagery that we should get when Paul is talking about pride, right? The image we should be getting, back in the day, they didn't have balloons back in the days, but the image that they would have been imagining is a painful image of an organ in the human body but it's an organ that has been overinflated because too much air has been pumped into it. And it's ready to blow and it's about to burst, right? It's swollen and it's gone way past its proper size. This is what Paul is trying to describe. This is the condition of the natural human ego. And according to the book that I was reading, it said that the image uh, that is painted suggests four things about the natural condition of the human ego. And those four things are it is empty, it is painful, it is busy, and it is fragile. First of all, empty, okay? The image points to the fact that there is emptiness at the center of the human ego. An ego that is puffed up, that is overinflated beyond its proper side, has absolutely nothing in the center, right? So the balloon has nothing in it, right? Just air, it's empty, okay? There's a quote by an author uh, named Soren. I'm not gonna even try saying his name. I don't wanna butcher it. Okay, in his book, Sickness Unto Death, uh, a Danish philosopher, he says, it is the normal state of the human heart to try to build its identity around something besides God. You see, spiritual pride is the illusion that we think we can figure out our lives, right? We can achieve our own sense of self-worth and find a purpose so convicting, uh, convincing that we can do it all without God. You see, our, human, that, our normal human ego searches and searches for something that will give us a sense of worth, a sense of specialness and a sense of purpose, and then we try to build upon that. I want to remind you that if you put anything in the middle of the place that was originally intended for God, it always, it will always fall short and it will be too small. It will rattle around in the empty human ego of ours, okay? Second, it is painful, right? An overinflated, swollen ego ego is painful. Think about it. If your body is fine, 
right? If there's no pain, if there's no hurt, nothing, we don't really notice that, right? You, don't, you know those moments where you cut yourself uh, accidentally where you're doing something, and then you didn't notice and you looked at it later and you're like, oh, ouch, that hurts, right? See, we typically don't notice our body parts when we, until we start hurting, okay? Think about it. When you're walking around, you don't think about like, wow, my feet feel wonderful. Like my toes, like they feel fantastic today. We don't really think about that, right? Or, oh, my elbows are actually like, oh, so smooth, right? We don't think about that. We don't think about something until there's something wrong with it. And that's because the parts of our body only draw attention to themselves if there is something wrong. And your ego often hurts, right? And that's because something is wrong with it. Our ego are constantly drawing attention to itself. Think about it. It's always making us think about how we look, how we are treated. You know that saying when people say, oh, you can't hurt my feelings? I mean, that's true. Feelings don't hurt, right? What does that even mean? Oh, my happiness is hurt. We don't say that, right? No, we say your ego is hurt. It's your ego that is hurting. The sense of self, the sense of who I am, my identity, our ego gets hurt. Third, okay, the ego is extremely busy, right? As in, it is always drawing attention to itself. Our egos are so busy trying to fill the emptiness. There are two things that it does well, and it's constantly doing, right? And we don't even know, or we even do this when we come to church, right? It's comparing, and it is boasting. Right? Look back at verse 6. It doesn't stop at, then you will not take pride. It says, then you will not take pride in one man over against another. This is the very essence of what it means to have a normal human ego. The way that our human ego tries to fill the emptiness and to deal with the discomfort is simply by comparing itself to others. Pride in itself is by nature competitive. Competitiveness is at the heart of pride. In the book, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, I love this guy. I love the way that he writes. But he says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are poured, up, poured, wait, oh, are poured of being rich or clever or good looking, but they are not. Okay? Oh, they are. We say that people are pr have pride of being rich or clever or good looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or clever or better looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. I just noticed there's a lot of typos in that, sorry. I think this is especially true in like Korean families, right? If you think about it, when I was growing up, my mom, she would make me do all these kind of things, taekwondo, violin lessons, piano lessons, clarinet lessons, lessons after lessons after lessons, tutors. Oh my goodness, like I, I didn't have a childhood or at least I think I didn't have one, okay? But maybe that's like you too, right? You like question your parents and they're like, yo, child, like just do it because it's gonna look good on your resume or maybe they won't say that to you now, but like it's like just do it, like trust me, it'll be good for later in life, right? You see, this is what our ego is doing all the time. We do things that take, that we have no pleasure in. We go to lessons that we have no pleasure in. We're doing these diets, these workout routines that we don't really care about, right? We do all these things, but not because we truly enjoy them for what they are, but because we're trying to do something, right? To create an impressive resume or to make ourselves look better. We compare ourselves to other people and we try to make ourselves look better than our neighbor, right? We end up boasting. Our egos are completely, completely busy. And the last one, finally, not only is the ego empty, Painful and busy, it is very fragile. Think about it, okay? Anything that is overinflated is in danger of being deflated or popped, right? Like the balloon. If we were to puff up 
if we were to be puffed up by air and not be filled with something solid, then an overinflated or deflated anything comes down to the same thing, right? Having a superiority complex and inferiority complex are practically the same thing. Both are a result of being overinflated. I want to give you guys an example. How many of you guys know who this person is? Does anyone know? Okay, some of you younger people are like, who is that? Like, <laughs> Pastor Tim, who is that, right? Madonna, okay? So this is Madonna. I think this is a picture of Madonna. Okay, I try, I'm not trying to put her down or say anything bad about her, um, but she has a very good understanding of herself. In an interview with Vogue, uh, this is what she said. She says, my, my drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That is always pushing me. I push past one spell of it, and I discover myself as a special human being, but then I feel I am still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. Man, that's exactly what the natural human ego is doing. It is empty, it is painful, it is busy, and it is fragile. Every time she accomplishes something, she's thinking, man, I got to do something else, right? I have this verdict. I have this, like, confirmation that I am someone. But then the next day, she's like, I got to keep going. I got to figure myself out again. The ego is never satisfied, and it is never fulfilled. You see, this is the normal state, and this is what Paul is talking about. This is the normal state of our human self, the human ego. And this is what Paul is talking about to the Corinthian church. All these people are fighting over who had a relationship with Paul, and they're showing these crazy amounts of pride and boasting. And because of this, they are unable to enjoy the fact that they just know Paul, right? That they have a relationship. Rather, this relationship has turned into a means of leveling up themselves above their fellow brother and sister, right? But we see that Paul presents something new to the table, and I'm so glad that he does. In verse 4 and 5, or 3 and 4 of chapter 4, we find the ramifications of what Paul is bringing to the table, and that is the gospel message, right? That's what he's sharing with the people. You see, the gospel message has the ability to transform your self-worth. His sense of self-regard, his self-worth, his identity was transformed because of this. And now his ego works totally different, and this is leading to our second point. The essence of the transformed view of self is gospel humility, right? Verse 1 and 2 of chapter 4 of Paul is saying, hey, He's like, I'm a leader, right? I'm a pastor. I'm a servant of Christ, right? Are we all servants of Christ? Amen, right? And he says that because I am a follower, I am a servant of Christ, he says that I could care less if he is judged by man or by any human courts, right? That's what we find in verse 3 and 4. The word judge actually is the same word uh, as verdict, right? So you see, the thing that Madonna is saying, right, that she craved, she craved for this verdict, this approval from people, is something that Paul doesn't even care about, right? Paul doesn't look to the Corinthians. He doesn't look to the human courts. He doesn't need any form of approval from anyone. For Paul, his self-worth, his self-regard, his identity is not tied in any way, shape, or form to their verdict and their evaluation of him. Now, for Paul, yeah, he says that. His identity isn't connected to what people say about him. But let's be real. How do we do that, right? How is that even possible? How do we reach the point where we're not controlled by the way people think about us? It's really hard if you ask me, and it's something that I struggle with even today. But if you went to a psychiatrist, or if you read some self-help book, the solution is simple, right? They would say this. They would say, yeah, okay, who cares what people think about you? Who cares what people say about you? It doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is what? 
what you think about yourself, right? It's what I think about myself, what I say, my standards, right? That's what really matters. And I think it sounds great because ultimately, it doesn't really matter what they're thinking. As long as you're happy with yourself, you're great. But you see, if it was this easy, man, I wouldn't even be doing a sermon right now, right? Not on this, right? I'd rather be talking individually with people and just telling them, hey, who cares what you know, Bob says or what Billy says? Like, ah, forget that, right? It matters what you think, right? But it's clear that we see, right, that Paul has a very different approach. It's clear because he says he doesn't care what people think about him. But he goes a step further, right? It's easy to say that, but he says this as well. He's like, hey, I don't even judge myself. I don't even care about myself. He's like, I don't care about what you think or what you say. I don't even care what I say about myself, right? I have a very low opinion of what you think about me, but I also have a very low opinion of my opinion of myself. Now, this is weird, right? We think that, oh, maybe if I set my own standards, like, it'll be good, right? Who cares about the, the world standard, my parents' standard, my friends' standards, society standards? We could say that, but that is not the answer, right? If you think about it, it doesn't deliver. If I cannot live to my friends, my parents, uh, this world, society standards, if I can't live up to those and I fail, I'll feel bad about myself. But then when it comes down to my own standards, let's say I don't live up to those, right? Then you feel even more terrible, right? You're just like, man, because then you start to think like, well, if I can't reach these standards, I have to lower it, lower it, lower it. And then you find yourself looking at yourself as a person with very low standards. And it's a trap, and it doesn't work that way. So now, now we start to get this, right? Paul is clearly saying that his identity, his self-worth, his verdict, his approval, it does not come from anyone, not even himself. But now he moves into a very scary, very unknown territory. For me, and maybe a lot of you guys as well, um, when we think of the Bible, Christianity, right, Paul is one of those people that is kind of up there, right? Super influential. This guy did so much for the church, for the early church. But we know the life of Paul, right? We know and we're familiar with the story of Paul. Paul was a terrible guy before he became Paul, right? The guy had issues. First Timothy says, uh, Jesus Christ came into this, to this world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Paul is saying this, right, in his letter to Timothy. He's like, Yo, Jesus came to save sinners, and I am the worst of the worst, right? I am the number one sinner on this earth, right? This guy did crazy things, right? Killing Christians. Um, but yet, despite this image and this identity that he had, he continued to spread this gospel message with confidence. You see, this is what Paul is doing. He doesn't let people judge him, okay? Nor does he let uh, himself judge himself, right? He acknowledges who he is. He acknowledges his sin, but he does not allow that to connect to who he is and his identity. He doesn't want to play that game, right? He doesn't want to let sin and who he was destroy his newfound sense of identity. But then again, he doesn't want to congratulate himself or show off his accomplishments, right? Now, I'm not trying to say, oh, we have to disconnect who we are and just lose individuality. No, not at all, right? I think individuality is important. We look at Paul, right? He claims to be the chief of sinners, Yo, this guy is holding true to his identity as the number one sinner, right? But he does not let that stop him from being an apostle, right, and spreading the gospel message. You see, Paul's ego isn't built up. It isn't puffed up. It is filled up, right? He talks about humility, but not any kind of humility. He's talking about this gospel humility. Paul has reached a place where his ego doesn't draw attention to itself anymore. He reached a place where he is not thinking about himself anymore. When things are good or bad, he doesn't connect those things to himself anymore. 
C.S. Lewis has another fantastic quote that uh, I want to share with you. Uh, he says that if we were to meet a truly gospel humble person, we wouldn't remember how humble they were of themselves, but rather how they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself, it is thinking of myself less. Read that twice because I had to read that like 10 times, right? That's a lot. This is the freedom of self-forgetfulness, right? Gospel humility is not thinking of myself and allowing that to get in the way of my living. It is the end to thoughts like, oh, I'm in a room with all these, all these people. Do I look good? Do I really want to be here? These thoughts, gone, right? True gospel humility means an ego that is not puffed up, but it is filled up. Now, I know some of you are thinking, wait, pastor, that's weird, right? That's crazy. Why would we neglect the feelings and who I am as a person? Forget myself? I can't, I can't deal with you. Like, sorry, pastor. Like, not, not today. But I want you to hear me out, right? I'm not done quite yet. I know you guys are tired. But let me explain more. Paul isn't saying ignore who you are. It's about ignoring the things that people think of you, but also the things that you think of yourself, because that's not what's important. And that brings us to our last point. But think about it, right? The more we get to know and understand this gospel message that radically changed the life of the number one sinner, Paul, the more this can be a reality. Wouldn't you want to be the person, think about this, wouldn't you want to be the person that doesn't need honor, but is also not afraid of it? Wouldn't you want to be someone that doesn't seek recognition, but also, on the other hand, isn't afraid of it? Don't you want to be the person that exercises, not for the fact that, oh, I need to get skinnier or whatever, or look like a K-pop celebrity, right? But truly because of the love and joy of working out? Don't you want to be the person who sings, who plays violin, or whatever instrument you want to play? Not because you're trying to one-up somebody else, but because you truly love it, for the fact that it is what it is? Don't you want to go to work? Don't you want to go on dates, go play, whatever, for the mere fact of what that is? Don't you want to be the person that isn't just trying to find things and ways to fill this void and emptiness? You see, this is what the essence of gospel humility is. But how do we get this? And that brings us to our last point. Verdict leads to or equals performance. You see, it's quite simple. Paul doesn't care what you think or what I think, right? In other words, he's pretty much saying, I don't look for you to you for the verdict, right? For the affirmation, nor do I look to myself for that. Then he goes on and says that my conscience is clear but that does not make me innocent. Now, innocent translates to the word justify. So what Paul is saying is that even if my conscience is clear, that doesn't justify me. Right? You see, what Paul is looking for, what Madonna is looking for, what we are looking for is an ultimate verdict, that we are important and valuable. We all want that. Right? We look to everything around us to find these things in everyday situations, to the people around us. And that means pretty much every day we are on trial. Every day, we are putting ourselves back in the courtroom. And it's funny, it's crazy, because Paul talks about courtrooms in, in the scripture reading today, right? And he doesn't, I don't think he was talking about like an actual courtroom, right? Because obviously, the, the Corinthians are not in a courtroom. They're at a church, right? They're a church that's having problems. But Paul is talking metaphorically about this courtroom. He's saying that the problem of self-esteem, whether you have a high one or a low one, is that every single day of our lives, we are in this courtroom, and every single day, we are on trial. You guys know how a court works, right? In the courtroom, you have the prosecution, you have the defense, and everything we do is providing evidence for either side, right? Whether it be for prosecution or defense. And then there are days when we feel like we're winning the trial, 
But we also have days where we're maybe not winning and we're just losing. But you see, Paul has the key. He has the secret to all of this, right? The thing is this, the trial is over, right? He is no longer in the courtroom. It's, it's over, it's gone, right? Because the ultimate verdict is already in. How's that so? Paul simply states, and this is the heart of the gospel message that he was sharing. He knows that people cannot justify him. He knows that he cannot justify himself. But he says that it is the Lord who judges him, and it is only God's opinion that truly matters. You see, the equation of the gospel message of Jesus Christ is not your performance leads to the verdict. It's the other way around. This is crazy thing about Christianity, right? It's the verdict that leads to the performance. That's the really unique thing about Christianity and the gospel message. The moment we believe and we accept this gospel message, God says, this is my son, this is my daughter, and whom I am well pleased. Romans 8.1 says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, it's clear. When we believe, God puts Christ's perfect performance in us as if it were our own. And then we become adopted into the family of God. So it's clear. The verdict is in, and now I don't need to perform in order to get a verdict. I don't need to perform in order to receive an affirmation. I perform on the basis that Christ has already given me an affirmation. Because Christ Jesus loves us. He accepts us. And I don't want to do things to build up my resume for God. I don't attend church because I'm trying to, you know, make sure that God is seeing my attendance and saying, hey, like, I'm here every Sabbath. No, I don't do these things to make me look good, I can just simply do things for the joy of doing them. I can help people not because I want to feel better about myself or not, not so that I can feel this emptiness inside of me, but so I can simply help people, simply to help people, right? And that sounds great. Some of you might be skeptical and just be like, yeah, how can that be, right? How does a verdict lead to performance? Paul's answer is this, right? Paul is no longer in the courtroom. He's no longer on trial. Why? That's because Jesus Christ decided to go on trial instead. It was Jesus that went into that courtroom. Jesus went on trial, and we no longer need to be there. And you see, this is the essence of the message that Paul was bringing, the gospel message. And this is where it's at. This is the liberating, free, freeing power of what the gospel can do for you and I. This is the power of gospel humility. It takes us out of the courtroom. It takes us out of trial. And it doesn't matter what the world thinks of me, Man, it doesn't even matter what I think of myself. What truly matters is what God thinks of me. And now, my verdict isn't based on how well I perform, but rather the verdict that Jesus Christ has given me leads to my performance. No longer do I find myself doing things to fill up a void, but rather I do things for the sake of doing them. Sometimes it's hard, and sometimes we find ourselves getting sucked back into the courtroom, thinking that we have to find some kind of evidence to prove ourselves every day, and this is my prayer, that we relive this gospel message every time we pray, that we must relive this gospel message every time we come to church, when we find ourselves getting sucked back into the courtroom. We must relive the gospel by asking ourselves why we are there, because there is no need for us to be there anymore. The case is closed and the court is adjourned. This issue of self-esteem has been something that, that I've been personally struggling with for many years. And when I was studying about this and reading about this, I was like getting really excited because it was a solution that was totally different than everything that I had been reading, right? This, this essence of the gospel, of what Jesus did for us, 
where your life can truly be filled with freedom once you accept and acknowledge the fact that it doesn't matter what the world thinks. It doesn't matter what I think of myself, but what really matters is what God thinks of me. And so I pray as a church that wherever you may be in your, your, your journey of self-esteem, that you feel and understand what God sees you as, and that's what really matters the most. The case is closed and the court is adjourned. Thank you.